Welcome to Beyond Politics on WKXL AM and FM and 101.9 FM in Manchester. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, strategist, writer, commentator, and all-around great guy, Matt Robeson. We're podcast wherever it is in the known universe. You find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please make sure to subscribe. Check out Beyond Politics and all the other podcasts we feature. We're really honored today to have as our guest someone who many political insiders think is the finest ad maker working in politics today. Mark Putnam has helped to elect 11 governors, 10 senators, and dozens of House members. He's worked on umpteen can candidate campaigns, including one of mine, where he made great ads. So the result that I didn't win wasn't his fault. He may be most famous for the fact that when Barack Obama had enough money in 2008 to produce not a 30-second ad, but a 30-minute film, he turned to Mark Putnam to direct it. According to the Washington Post, Mark has a reputation in beltway circles as the go-to guy for candidates running tough races in red states. And we're sad to say that's pretty much what Democrats are up against in 2022. A lot of tough races with a pretty strong wind in their faces. So if we're going to have a chance, we're going to be relying on Mark Putnam. And he's here with us to reveal all of his secrets for exactly how we're going to do it. Now, all joking aside, Mark, welcome to Beyond Politics. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. So now we don't want to we don't want you to give the store away to Republicans here, but Democrats are in a super tough environment. We're down two and a half points on the generic ballot. The president is at about 40% approval and about 80% of the country says we're on the wrong track. Can Democratic candidates be successful in this environment? And what is it going to take? Well, here we are in July. So we're still a little ways out from election day, although I'm not in the camp that thinks everything's going to get a lot better for us between now and November. The, the place to start is that we as Democrats have to tell our story, that we have been fighting for middle-class families, working families, trying to just ease the burden coming out of the pandemic. Trying, We are battling inflation to the degree that we can, that we are really protecting health care that we are going to, you know, more proactively assert the right to choose, that we need to, to, to codify that if we can. And, but I, in the end, I really believe that a lot of these tougher to win districts are going to be, these campaigns are going to be waged on the economy. I feel like Roe v. Wade, the abortion battle is, is activating both bases of, of the two parties. And it's that, ma that massive the middle uh, voters that are going to be ultimately making a choice on who who do I think is going to help help us get out of what looks like we're turning into a recession, what looks like pretty bad stock market. Who can actually be on my side in the economy? We have to have we have to make a better case on that. So in order to do that, you make ads. You are kind of the fulcrum of taking here's our message, and we're going to deliver it to voters in a way that they find compelling and hopefully change their behavior. And you are, as Paul alluded to, famous, certainly in, in political inside circles, for being among the best, if not the best people out there at doing that. Can you take our listeners 
inside your process just a little bit. So if you just got hired to make ads for a Democrat in, let's say, a purple state, where do you start? How do you go from, from that starting point where you meet the gal or the guy and then go step by step to figuring out this is the kind of ad they need to give them the best chance to win? It all starts with really getting to know the candidate. Um, we start with a bio call where we spend sometimes hours having the candidate tell their story. I start with a blank slate. I don't try to come in with their resume in front of me. I wanna hear them tell their story. What do they think is important? What are the memories they have from their childhood, from their years in public service? What got brought them to this place where they are now, where they're running? I really believe, especially in a year like this with headwinds that we have to make it, you have to tell the candidate story. We have to make it about them and the voters and try not to get sucked into this national debate. And especially in purple states, red states, even more so, if you are running on national issues, which are usually national democratic issues or how we're going to get labeled, whether for better or for worse, that's usually not a great place to start. Instead, my view is let's localize the race. And, let's, and part of localizing is showing how that candidate is really a part of the community, that they're from there, or if they weren't from there originally, that they certainly understand all of the values of that community. And I want to learn all the stories. I want to hear literally everything that they can think of to tell me about their life, about the lives of their family members, their children, their elders in the family. What are all of the pieces of the puzzle that need to come together for me to have a full understanding of the candidate so that I can then, when I look at the polling and see where the public opinion research guides us strategically, where can I find the intersections between what the can what has happened in the candidate's life or what their ideas are and, and where the voters are. And ultimately so, you have to meet the voters where they are. So this cycle, you've got to be talking about the economy. If that's what the polling is telling you, it, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that that's, that's where the minds of the voters are. So you're going to find, I'm just reading this back to you and I'm probably going to distort it. So you are, you're going to find a way for your, for your slate of candidates to tell in an authentic way their story and how it meets up with, we want to be talking to the voters about the economy, but we're going to do it through the lens of this person's experience, their life, their local ties, what that means to them and the, and the people who live around them. It, Exactly. But I will also say this, that it every race is different and it always depends. A good example of this is a race that I did in 2011. It was Michael Hancock who's running for mayor of Denver. And in 2011, we were coming out of that recession, the Great mm. Recession. The economy was the number one issue in our poll by, by six or eight points. But the trouble was there were four other candidates who are all going to be on the air, plus another five on top of that, that were also in the race, a crowded field of 10 candidates. We had the, of the candidates that were going to be on the air, we had the least amount of money and uh, we could only break, we only could air two ads. So we had to break through. So in that instance, what I did was I, I recalled a visit I had with Michael. I spent a, a whole weekend with him. And at the end of that weekend, I, I asked him as he was dropping me off at the hotel, I said, so what, what's your day like tomorrow? He said, well, I'm going to take my son to school and, and head to the office after that. I said, what, where do you take your son to school? Is it a neighborhood school? He goes, oh, no, actually, our, our neighborhood school is failing. I take him downtown to East High School because I just want him to get the best education he can. And, and we were able to get accepted into that school. And I sort of stored that away. And then when the poll came back and it showed that, yes, economy was the number one issue, 
The number two issue was school reform. Mm. None of the other candidates wanted to talk about that. We had a candidate who every day would take his son to school. The first ad, though, we, in order to set up that ad, had to tell his biography in the first commercial. And again, that came from a lot of time spent with Michael, learned all about his family. He was one of 10 kids. The father had abandoned the family when he was very young. They grew up in poverty, lived in housing projects, lived in motels at certain times in their life. He had a, a, a brother who, was, who died of AIDS and a sister was murdered. I mean, he had this incredible story of adversity that he had overcome. So that was the first ad. But then that second ad was to show how school reform and education was a really a vital issue in, in their family. And yes, it was a third rail issue for most candidates. He was willing to talk about it and that every day he drove his son 18 miles to school and then drove him back at the end of the day. And that dedication as an African-American father to seeing his son succeed, and, and he wanted to be a different sort of parent than his own father had been, really resonated with people. So while everybody else was talking about the economy, as, they, as their polling told them they should do, we actually took the second best issue. So it just mm. depends. Sometimes there might be a really meaningful reason for going off the expected playbook. That's really fascinating to hear because I'm thinking back, Mark, to our the campaign we did together, and we started in a very different way, in a very different place because of the opponent we were facing and what were the interesting, the interesting headwinds at the time, rather than starting with bio and nice, nice, we, we sort of went right at, right at our opponent, given what we were seeing in the polls and what, what needed to be done. So it really is a, it's a highly variable, but highly, highly personal process. Let me ask you this. You've been at this for three decades and you're, you're a young fella. So it means you started when you were about six, probably. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just curious, how is the way you think about your ads changed based on all of the changes in environment in technology, the way people consume information. We're in the social media age when 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 we worked together on a campaign in, in 2010, it was really kind of before the huge onvent of social media. Can can you think of an ad you did one way, say 15 years ago, that you might do differently now because of that evolution? Well the the what's what's really interesting to me is how in my view, political media has come full circle. A lot of the founding fathers of the business, and they were all men, so it's, I think it's okay to call them founding fathers, were all documentary filmmakers by and large. And, and I, my first boss was Bob Squire. And he, he basically was a documentary filmmaker who found his way into the Hubert Humphrey campaign and uh, did a, a, a television infomercial, uh, which is interesting because I sort of did something similar many years later. But he specialized in very organic advertising that told the story of the candidates with cinema verite shooting, which means you're not directing the action, you're just capturing the action. It's all very real life. And then over the years, as editing technology got better and better, we started using more bells and whistles in the advertising. And I remember an ad for Nike that back in the 90s where there was a runner 
running through the streets of a city at night and cast up on the walls were images of all the Nike athletes, star athletes doing their competitive sports and while this runner was running through the city. And it was powerful and it had this beautiful music score. We should talk about music too, let's not forget to come back to that. But I really love that idea of projecting images up onto buildings. And so there was a period of time where in the late 90s, early 2000s, I would do that. I would use the technology we had, a little different than the way they did it in the, in the Nike ad, but we cast these images on buildings and, and it was an inter interesting effect. Or I would have people hold placards, a card in front of them with video inside of the card. So they're holding a piece, a piece of cardboard basically, but they would have video image in front of it. Lots of little digital tricks. And I have to tell you, by the later two th or the first decade of the 2000s, I got tired of that. I, I started realizing we were leaning too much on the special effects we could create with a modern editing system, and we were getting away from storytelling. And so I very consciously started stripping my ads of all of those gimmicks and came back to what I thought moved me in the first place, which was a really good story. And so, Paul, it's a great question. Like, is there an ad that I would have done differently now that I did back then? I just think all of them are different from what I did back then. And I really do try to seek out that story and tell it in a really human way, try to use emotion. I mentioned music earlier. I really think music is a critical component of any advertisement because I think the best advertising works both sides of the brain, the left side, more rational, logical side, the right side, the more emotional side, the music is what activates the emotional side. And when you have both hemispheres of your brain working, I think it just makes for a more powerful argument. You pull people in with emotion and a story, and then you actually do need to make a point in the ad. It's not just about feeling good about somebody, but knowing that they're going to fight for you on the right issues and that they have the right positions. You do have to get that into the ad as well. So it's, it's really a technology question. And so what has also changed with the rise of the internet is the ability to tell longer stories than just 30 seconds or occasionally one minute. You see a lot of launch videos that are longer form, two minutes, sometimes three or four minutes. I did one that was nine or 10 minutes once. We ended up dividing it up into chapters and released the chapters individually. But the point was we were able to, with the rise of the internet and the online donor base of the Democratic Party, which is really strong, if you can get an ad out in front of people that tells a story in a compelling way, and it's usually if it's for a federal race. So if you're somebody in Nebraska, but you can invest in somebody running for Congress in, in Kentucky, and you're really moved by their story, and it might help flip the house to the Democrats, you're going to contribute to them. So there's a practical political reason for doing those longer form videos, but it's also part of the storytelling that's come back around where we now have the means to tell longer stories. I'm going to put that point about speaking to an audience of donors in the parking lot for later. Because I, I do want to return to that, who we're talking to and who we're trying to motivate here. I just very quickly, is it true that Paul Hodes is the only candidate who's appeared in one of your ads over the last 30 plus years who wrote and performed his own music for the ad? He is. It was and I, I, one of my favorite ads. It was a 60 second ad with... I believe it was 60 seconds. Now I'm forgetting if it was 30 or 60. I think it was 60. I think we where, cut both. I think we did. You're right. And 
I came to Paul and I said, I knew, Paul, that you were a musician, that you and your wife had a show where you played music for children. And, and uh, I said, do you have any pieces of music you like that, that we could maybe use as the base for this ad? And my memory is you, 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 play, you sent me a few samples and I said, well, I like that one, but maybe we can expand on it. You, you then recorded the music track for the ad. And then in the ad itself, you, we start and end with you playing the guitar for a group of children. And you're the only you're the only candidate that's been able to do anything remotely like that. And it was really special ad. Well, part of the reason I bring that up is that, first of all, it's kind of kind of cool. And it really does make your point, because in that image, what I really liked about that ad is that image of Paul playing music for a group of children told a whole long story in about three seconds. It was it was quite something. The other reason is that I remember everything that went into the ad shoot. It was summer, it was 2010, it was broiling hot. And we were doing several days of ad shooting on that campaign. And I, this is all leading up to a question, I promise. But you have a reputation that I think is well-deserved as being very particular, as, as really sweating the details. And I say this in the most admiring way I can, because I believe it, when I've worked as a campaign manager, that that job is about sweating the details. You believe as an ad maker that your job is to sweat the details. And you develop a very specific vision and, and very specific design elements that have to be there for your vision. So we had people from the Hodes campaign running around getting a seaplane that had to land on a lake in a particular <laughs> way. And we, they found a seaplane, believe it or not, they called your office. You said, nope, that's not the right look for the darn seaplane. I need a different looking seaplane. My favorite <laughs> element of that shoot was we were, have, we were showing Paul driving <laughs> along a road with his dog hanging his, his dog Mango, holding his head out the window. We had that, to by, get... that, by the way, is my favorite political ad of all time. It's the one that everybody at the time and even for years afterwards said, Oh, you're the guy with that ad with the dog in the car. Yeah, yeah, um, the dog. It was the, the, dog. Was the dog. Well, you know what went behind that dog? Literally the face of a young staffer who, in order to get the optimal amount of lean out of the window, had to put his face beneath the rear end of the dog and push upward, which, by the way, became a little bit of a meme on our campaign because you later shot an ad showing people eating hot dogs and a hot dog eating contest. And this youngest staffer was like, well, I got to participate under a hot dog myself. And the best part, the best part of that was even with the butt pushing maneuver, there was not enough lean for Mark Putnam, ad director. So we had to ask Paul, Paul, what entices this dog? And you said, well, Mango likes cheese. And so here I am, the chief of staff to a member of the US Congress and we're shooting this ad in Cook, New Hampshire, which happened to be where I lived. And I was tasked at 7 a.m. with procuring some cheese, which I did not have in my refrigerator at the time. I'm going across the street from the Kentuka covered bridge and rail yard, and I'm going to the only store that's open in a 10 mile radius, the Mr. Mike's grocery store inside the gas station. And Mark is on the phone with his production assistant saying like, we need the cheese. And he's calling me and he's like, Matt, got to get some cheese. And I'm walking across the street 
30 seconds later, my phone rings again. It's the production assistant. Matt, what's the update on the cheese situation? That's the kind of intensity that Mark Putnam brings. So, okay, I promised like 20 years ago that this was going to turn into a question. Mark Putnam, why are you like this? And I, I mean this, I mean this quite seriously because you're profiled in the Washington Post for many of your super creative ads. You have Al Gross, the, the Senate candidate in Alaska, skiing 7,000 feet down a mountain to deliver one line to camera. You you have people doing some really interesting things, but the details matter. The exact kind of seaplane matters. The color, the on the vest of the candidate matters. Why? Why? Why does all of this matter? And can you, can you remember a particular choice you made in an ad that, that was very specific, but that you thought was really going to make a difference? Well, I can remember an example of an ad that were it not for a bit of serendipity, we might not have been able to help elect a governor. I'll get to that in a minute. So why am I like this? My wife would like to know the answer to that too. <laughs> I, I mean, I literally, I'm, I'm the guy who picked out the China pattern when we registered our, for, uh, for our wedding. I believe that every element of the ad has to be as good as it can possibly be, that you can't mail it in on any aspect of it. And that every frame, there are 30 frames in a second. So a typical 30 second ad has 900 frames. I worry about every frame, all 900 frames. I want to make sure that what you see in the background is, is if, if even if it doesn't support the message, at least is not distracting. I want scene, political scenes to not look like the standard cliche. Now, Paul, we could have had you walking with your dog in a field or down the sidewalk. You see that all the time. I thought you've got a really cool dog who, by the way, slobbers a lot, like have him leaning out the window with you driving your Jeep and the, and the Jeep Cherokee, maybe or Wagoneer is what I remember. Green Jeep Cherokee. Thank you. It's been a while and I remember. And I wanted the dog in the back seat, which is a, such a classic thing that a dog owner does with their dog. They let them sit in the back seat and lean out the window, but you don't see that in political ads. So I thought, that's why I wanted that scene and I needed to be able to see the dog. So we had to have the dog lean out enough. I don't remember if we did a test run and that's why we knew we needed the cheese. I don't remember that. Matt, you might remember better than me why we realized we needed the cheese, but it, it made for a great shot. And I just think that the, the script, the words have to be right. I sweat the details on the script. There's a rhythm and a flow to language. I learned that from Peggy Noonan, right? She's a pretty conservative Republican, but wrote an amazing book called What I Saw at the Revolution about her years as a Reagan speechwriter. That had a large influence on my writing style, as did another ad maker named Hal Reine, who made the Morning in America ads for Reagan. He had a very spare writing style. So to me, the language matters, the imagery matters, how we show the candidate matters, that you want them to look like an accessible, regular person, because they are. I mean, everybody thinks candidates are these people up on a, on a hill or something, and, and they're, they're people like you and me, and, but I think too much, too much political advertising doesn't feature that. And so I wanted to show Paul how you were a regular with, with your dog, one among many shots in that day. And why we wanted the particular seaplane, I knew from growing up in Alaska, that you needed the two pontoon boat, two pontoons on the on the airplane like a Cessna. That's what the classic taking off of a lake shot would be. And I think that originally you guys got like a boat type airplane. I said, no, I want the two pontoons type of smaller, more of a, a I don't want to say consumer level airplane, but something that a, a regular weekend pilot might have. I, I just got to tell you, before you tell the how you saved a governor's race with a particular detailed choice, I just got to tell you, when you shot the intro video for Paul, you did it actually in my backyard. 
in New Hampshire. And I remember attention to detail at a certain point, like the shot looks perfect. looks perfect. And you're like, Hey, Matt, are you particularly attached to that twig over there? And I'm like, Mark, what are you talking about? I'm like, no. And you go over, you snap off the trick because it was too distracting. It was not the right arrangement of twigs in the background, but you're, you, you previewed, I got to hear the, the closure on this. You, you, you think a governor's race hinged on that kind of detailed choice in the ad? Well, it was, it was, it was, serendipity. So Brad Henry was running for governor in Oklahoma in 2002, and he was in a crowded field of Democrats. We had to try to get into a runoff against a wealthy former Republican who'd switched to the Democratic Party. All the unions had lined up behind him because he was wealthy and he could self-fund his campaign. So the unions thought, well, we got to be with that guy. Brad was a state senator, probably at three or four percent in the polls. And I knew that he had three daughters, but I had not had a chance to meet them. It was unusual. Usually by this point in time in the campaign, I would have been able to meet the family, but I wasn't able to. I wrote a script that had all three daughters speaking in the ad, each doing individual lines. And I was told the daughters were 10, 8, and 6. Well, when they showed up at the shoot, the six-year-old was actually four. And that's a huge difference in, a, in, in, in persuading a child to do their lines on camera. She didn't want to do it. She was clinging to her mom's leg. She had no interest in this. We had her sit on a, on a playground set in the middle of a big field outside of a school, and she was terrible. And I remember thinking, oh boy, this is an omen for the campaign. Like this campaign is really not raising any money. We're dead last in the polls. This is an omen. of And I, and I, and I actually thought this ad's just not going to work. I can't make this ad because I need all three daughters to be able to perform. Well, then out of nowhere, this little baby kitten comes walking up. We are in a field for a hundred yards to any bushes where maybe there might've been kittens born for from a stray cat. This baby kitten walks up and, and Bailey was the young girl's name. She goes, can I play with the kitten? And Kim Henry, future first lady of the state of Oklahoma says, sure, honey, if you do your lines. And so we literally held the kitten over the camera and Bailey just lit up. And she does all these lines perfectly because she's talking to the kitten. Oh <laughs> she's like the last line in the ad. She says, he'll be a great governor. And it just melts your heart. That ad never would have happened if this baby kitten hadn't come out of nowhere. Well, so Brad comes up to me after the end of, the, of that part of the shoot. And he goes, well, that kitten saved us. I, I said, <laughs> and I said, by the way, I think you now own a baby kitten. He goes, I know. And I really don't like cats. And I said, well, this one might've just made a difference for us. So about three weeks later, Brett, we're on the phone. I asked Brad, hey, by the way, how's the kitten doing? He goes, well, we took it to the veterinarian and I don't remember. He said, we got it dewormed or deloused or whatever you do to baby kittens. And the next day it died. No. And I'm like, oh my God, maybe this is an omen because we still weren't raising any money. My wife, by the way, when I've told the story before, she says, make sure you tell them that he did buy her another kitten. So Bailey did get another kitten. <laughs> We put the ad on the air. It, it was pre-YouTube, pre-viral ads, but they were the phone was ringing off the hook of people loving this ad. We squeaked into that runoff. We and that ad had a fair amount to do with that. We then ended up winning the runoff, but we're now in a general election against Steve Largent, who is a former football oh, yes. Hall of Famer congressman, was the, going to be the winner. I mean, everybody just thought, okay, well, it's just a conservative state. He's going to win. A wealthy donor called up the state party and said, I will give the state party some large amount of money, $250,000, $400,000. I don't know what it was, large amount. If you do nothing, 
but run that little girl ad for the last two weeks of the campaign. So that's what we did. We ran a little girl ad. Brad Henry won by half a point. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so so, it, it, so it's, it's, it's less about attention to detail, I suppose, but knowing that every little detail matters. Having that Bailey, this wonderful four-year-old, light up the screen the way she did, be as relaxed and comfortable as she was in the ad, showed, honestly, it reflected on what kind of father he was. The, the, the way all three girls were such great children, such great daughters. Like, I think a little thing like that, one ad can make a difference. And that never would have happened were it not for that kid. Wow. So let me ask you this. More, more and more, it, it, it seems like campaigns are working on turning out their own voters, as opposed to trying to persuade people who might be undecided or might be in where we, where we could call the middle. So it makes sense because political scientists estimate that today, these days, six to nine percent of the electorate is truly persuadable. That's that's a really tiny, tiny piece of the electorate. And 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 only that kind of percentage might actually split their ticket or vote for one party in one election. They might vote for somebody else in another election from your point of view and what you're seeing and, and the way you work. Do you think persuasion is dead in American politics? Do we still shoot for the middle or do we spend more time focusing on mobilizing Democrats to show up and, and vote? And this is where I want to pull out of the parking lot. The factor that you're mobilizing Democrats often these days to donate before you're even getting to show up. So is, is that maybe where the focus is? Well, there's there's donor communication and there's voter communication. So donor communication is where you are creating what you hope will be a viral video. Very few of them actually go viral, but at a minimum, they can at least be a calling card for a candidate before they call a donor and, and ask for a contribution. They can send the video and say, hey, here's my story. Take a look. And hopefully they'll get the donor to, to contribute. Voter communication is very different. Vote, most voters are not seeing those longer form videos. And, and so what we do with our, with our paid communications can be very, very different from what we might've done online to raise money. And Paul, you, you raise a really good point. The, the partisanship of our country has gotten to the point where it used to be on a standard 50-50 district, maybe 40% were absolutely gonna vote for the Republican, 40% for the Democrat, and you had 20% in the middle that you were fighting over. Now you are right, we're sometimes fighting over five or 6% which means a lot more of our advertising really is about mobilizing the base. It's why I think Roe v. Wade, abortion, the Supreme Court will be an important component of what we do this, this cycle. It's not, I think, I still think that in the, in the, in the middle, we're going to be fighting over the economy, but we do have to motivate our bases. And that's with the gerrymandering that's happened. We have very few districts nowadays that are considered truly right down the middle de districts. They're, they're usually either heavily weighted towards the Democrats or towards the Republicans. So that is something that we have to factor in. But still, how do we, a, a Republican-leaning voter or a solid Republican voter, but who's not a Trump voter, consider voting for a Democrat? And that is oftentimes showing that they're not a national Democrat, that they're not a monster from the, the, one of the coasts. And I think a great example of that is Jason Kander. If we have time, I can tell the story about how we made an ad for, for Jason, where we knew- It's one of your most famous ads, do it. Okay, well, so Jason is running for Senate in Missouri against Roy Blunt. We knew that we were gonna be attacked for having an F rating from the NRA, which usually in Missouri is 
makes you radioactive. The reason he had the F rating was that he was in favor of background checks. Oh my goodness, how horrible background checks would be. But, but that was a defining issue for the NRA, and we had an F rating. We knew we had to deal with this. Well, back when I spent a weekend with Jason, we had lots of conversations. And one of those conversations was, what was it like in boot camp? What, what was that whole process like? I hadn't served in the, in the military, so I really didn't know. So he told me a lot about that process. Along the way, I learned that he knew how to assemble and disassemble a rifle really quickly. Well, then, okay, well, okay, that's interesting. How can we potentially use that? Well, it would show that he's comfortable with a weapon, that while he is for background checks and has the frame from the NRA to Republican and independent voters in Missouri, it could be a way of sort of making them more comfortable with Jason. But I asked Jason, I said, you know, Jason, assembling a rifle really quickly, I mean, that's interesting, but I don't know if it'll make a great ad. I don't know. Can you do it blindfolded? Because that would make a great ad. And he goes, I don't know. Never tried it. He goes, I had built it in my tent at night once, but I've never done that. So I said, well, why don't you see if you can assemble it blindfolded? So he sent me a video about a week later of him assembling the rifle quickly. I said, I, I believe you on that. I know you can do that. Show me you doing that blindfolded. About two weeks later, he sent me a video of him standing at his kitchen counter, assembling it with a blindfold on. I said, okay, now I know I can write the script. So I wrote the script back and forth with Jason on it. I originally wanted to call the ad blindfold. And he's smartly said, no, we should call it background checks. Because even when somebody goes to the YouTube page, I want them to understand if they're a Democrat, that I'm not, that this ad is actually for them, that it's about background checks. And we, when the NRA hit us and Roy Blunt hit us on with the F rating, we ran that ad and it helped us basically stem, staunch any hemorrhaging of votes that we were going to have over that. Jason almost won that race. We, we, we lost by three points in Missouri when Hillary Clinton lost by, by 19. So we outperformed her by 250,000 votes. 250,000 people voted for Trump and for Jason Kander. And I'd like to think that part of that was what an amazing candidate he was. And a small part of it was that we, we basically showed Missouri voters, he's not an alien. He's not a national Democrat who's going to take your gun away. He's comfortable with it. He just thinks he should have background checks. And it helped to have an ad that really drew people in and held their attention. All right, then let me follow up with a two-parter for you. What's your favorite ad? Is that your favorite ad? What's the favorite ad that you've done? And here's part two, and this, this is the curveball for you. Can you think of an ad that's your favorite that you didn't do, but that as a professional, I mean, you referenced Peggy Noonan before, that as a professional, Republican or Democrat, you said, wow, that is an incredibly effective ad. I wish I'd done that. My favorite ad is one that folks that know some of my past work wouldn't expect me to say. In 2013, I believe it was, Ed Markey got elevated to the Senate and his seat was open in Massachusetts. And it was, I forget the district number, but there were five, six or seven candidates running. And I was working for Carl Shortino. And Carl was a, 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 a openly gay state legislator. His piece of, his state legislative district was a very small part of the congressional district, so he wasn't well known. And he had very little money. And but one of the stories that I learned about Carl was that his father was a was a card carrying, dues paying member of the Tea Party. Now I don't know where in the heck you pay dues to the Tea Party, but this guy somehow figured out somebody to pay money to. But his father was very conservative. And uh, I thought there's something interesting there. We have this 
openly gay state legislator with an ultra conservative father. What, what can we do with that? And so I had Carl called up his dad and said, hey, dad, would you mind being in, in a TV commercial for me? He goes, sure, if I can tell people I disagree with every single thing you stand for. And Carl said, sold. That's what we want you to do. And so we made an ad where all it was, was Carl and his father in individual different settings, just talking to the camera. Because all I could afford to do was get a little 35 millimeter camera that can shoot video, one light and a sound microphone. And I had each of them finishing each other's sentences, telling the story about how Carl came out as not being gay to his father, but came out as a Massachusetts liberal to his father. <laughs> And, uh, and it was just a wonderful story about how even a father and a son, which gets into all sorts of issues there about familial relations, can have these incredible disagreements, yet in the end still love each other. And that's what the, at the very end of the ad, there's a nice moment where Carl says, I love you, dad. And, and his dad says back, me too, son. And it showed that we can have disagreements and yet still come out in, ahead in, in the end and, 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 and love each other. And so I just really love that ad because we had very little money. It went viral. It was one of the earlier YouTube viral sensations. We raised a bunch of money we didn't expect to. We didn't win, but Carl went from sixth or seventh up to third place and sort of preserved his ability to maybe run for something else down the line. He hasn't, but I wish he would. He's a really an extraordinary person. But that, that ad is probably my favorite because it was so simple and it was about something so basic as a the love between a father and a son. Yeah. Now, an ad that, that I, I really respect that made by somebody else. I mentioned Hal Reiney earlier. He did the Morning in America ads for Ronald Reagan in 1984. I... I those ads were formative for me. I, as a young kid growing up in Anchorage, Alaska, most political advertising was, was awful up there. But I remember those ads. I was more apolitical when I was in high school. I had a Ronald Reagan poster on my wall and a Jimmy Carter poster on my wall. I had both. But I remember those ads for the power of, hey, it was a very hopeful ad series about how America was, was turning the corner on what had been a really horrible end of the previous decade. And and the music was important. Hal Reine narrated those ads. He would narrate his own commercials. He had a wonderful voice fueled by smoking and, and bourbon, but it gave him a gravelly voice and the ads were beautiful. And so I, I, I always like to look at those ads as an example of just phenomenal ad making by somebody who wasn't normally a political ad maker. Hmm. Let me take you back the way we're going to go back to the Wayback Machine. 2008, I jumped on board with the Obama campaign. I think I was the first congressman, except for somebody, except for maybe Jan Schakowsky in Illinois, to endorse Obama in that race. He was at about nowhere in the polls. Maybe he was at 8% or 9%. Nobody gave him a chance. He'd, he'd done this speech in 2004. You got involved with the Obama campaign. And tell, tell, tell us about it. Did you have a sense of working on something historic and different? What, what was it like for this out-of-the-box candidate, a young man who, who a lot of people thought was, wasn't ready. So I, in the primaries, in the early part of the, of the presidential campaign, was actually working for Governor Bill Richardson, who is just an extraordinary person, and, and I was proud to be working for him. But I was watching you did the, the job interview ad, right? Right. We did a whole series of where he's being interviewed for the job of president. People, go, go Google that. It's just, oh, air kiss. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. Go okay. On. So, <laughs> so that helped. 
uh, Governor Richardson go from seventh or eighth place in the primary field uh, in Iowa, New Hampshire, up into fourth place, which kind of bottomed the ticket from Iowa into New Hampshire, where he again came in fourth and he dropped out after that. But I, the whole time I was kind of was, my heart was with both candidates. I really, I just was looking at Barack Obama thinking, what an extraordinary person running for office. And I also love Bill Richardson. So sometimes you are in a position like that, but we were already with, with Governor Richardson and I was proud to work for him. But when they were putting the team together for the general election, I was fortunate along with my partner then, Steve Murphy, our firm, Murphy Putnam Media, we were brought on board for the general election. So I really wasn't in the tent until May of, of, 20, of 2008. And I remember one of those early decisions was where are we going to, how are we going to hold the convention? How are we going to do the keynote or not the keynote, I guess the acceptance of the nomination speech. And I remember throwing the idea in the bin and I'm sure other people must've suggested it too, but I'm like, you should do it in the football stadium. The, they don't have a, a game for like two weeks in that stadium. The Denver Broncos weren't going to play there. You could, you could build the set and hold the, hold the, at least the, the, the final night there. And uh, so I was, it was exciting to be a part of that effort. And to just to see that we had a good feeling about it. We made a lot of really interesting advertisements, got the chances you mentioned earlier to do the half hour special for him. And but it just you knew you were a part of history. And at the time, I thought this is a mountaintop. I don't know if I'll have other mountaintops in my career, but this was a mountaintop. And 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 he was he was just extraordinary to get to work with. Well, what a nice positive note to end things on. We started with looking ahead to the 2022 midterms, which I don't think any of us are that psyched about, but hope springs eternal. But I, I, I like to leave on the idea of being at the top of the mountaintop. It is absolutely a privilege to get to experience all these all these memories and get all these insights from Mark Putnam. And I, I just I could do this all day. I, I hate to wrap up this show, but Mark, on behalf of Paul, thanks thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really been fun. 